When you think of a Texan, you probably picture a cowboy, maybe even a kid riding to school on a horse. And while that's sometimes the case, it doesn't quite fit for everyone. Texans come in all shapes, sizes, ethnicities, and backgrounds. And that's why the Austin American Statesman is proud to present Truly Texan, a podcast showcasing all the different people that make the Lone Star State so unique. Today, we're speaking with Matt Haynes, an Austin-based filmmaker whose work often tells the stories of the people and history of Texas. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners with who you are and what you do? Yeah, my name is Matt Hames, and I'm a filmmaker. And you are originally from Dallas, but you're now here in Austin. How long have you been in Austin? I've been in Austin since 1997, so I'm not quick on the math. I'm not sure how many years that is, but a long time. I was brought to Austin originally by a a film class that was here in Austin, and um, a UT film professor named Steve Mims had left UT at that point and started his own film school. And I read about it. I was living in Dallas and working at sort of a corporate job and was not uh, thrilled with the the work I was doing there. Um, And so I uh, and a couple of my friends decided to take uh, Steve Mims' class in Austin, which originally began with us driving once a week to Austin from Dallas. Um, it was insane. We would meet in the parking lot of uh, the Infomart in Dallas, if you know where that is, and we would ride down, uh, get there by 6, go to class until like 9, 30, 10, eat at Whataburger on the way back, get back at like 1 in the morning, and then I had to be at work the next day. So did that for a semester, and then um, after doing that, um, made a short film and then decided to leave my job and move to Austin And you actually have a pretty long history in Texas, right, with your family. I believe you're a a fifth-generation Texan? Yes, yes. Um, I feel a little like I'm talking about a dog breed when I'm talking about myself about that. (laughs) But um, yeah, like my pedigree, I guess, is a Texan. Um, On my dad's side, I'm fifth-generation Texan, at least fifth. There's some question about whether – the great 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 grandfather was um, in, like he if he was born in Texas or not. But um, my dad's side of the family comes out of a little town called Wolf City, Texas, which is near Greenville, um, East Texas. And uh, then after World War II, my grandfather um, came back from World War II from Europe, and he uh, moved to Dallas, which is where um, he had my dad and my dad's brother. And then I was born uh, there in Dallas in 1971. Getting into your career in film, you had those classes, but before that, what was your interest in film like? Had it been something that even when you were a little kid, you you know wanted to make movies, you wanted to do something in film? What was that like for you? Yeah, um, I was kind of a handful as a little kid, and my mom um, put me in this theater school uh, because of the dramatic things I would do to um, freak her out like pranks and I wore costumes a lot and you know wanted to make little videos and stuff like that. So she enrolled me in this theater school in Arlington called Creative Arts Theater School and I did classes there and um, I knew probably by the time I was 13 that I didn't want to do theater and I didn't want to be an actor but I had an agent and I was doing random Um, auditions for films and commercials and I was randomly in an Aerosmith music video um, as an extra. Um, I was on some shows. I did some like a movie of the week that had like Danny Glover and Diane Weiss in it and kind of a big thing but I was like a small part. 
Um, and I just – as a kid, I kind of knew that I wanted to um, at some point work in, in film or you know, tell stories. I didn't quite know exactly what. But I knew it didn't – I didn't want it to be acting after I was about 13. But um, I – then after I graduated from high school, I uh, went – I spent a year um, not doing much and then I went to University of North Texas and I was in the um, film school at University of North Texas. Um, but it was a little frustrating at that point. They really didn't let undergrads touch any of the filmmaking equipment. I just had to like be in other people's movies, um, the grad students. And um, so I was a little frustrated with that. And uh, some friends urged me to learn Mac um, software, to learn Premiere and After Effects. At that time, it was called COSA After Effects. It's now Adobe. Um, and Photoshop and Illustrator so that I could get jobs um, and, and actually make money and, and learn editing. And that was kind of when this thing was going on called the desktop video revolution. And it was like when Robert Rodriguez had made his first film too, like El Mariachi. And people were starting to be able to spend you know, three grand, buy a computer, have it at their house and edit and make their own films or animation or, or whatever. Um, and so I went that route and tried to to um, start a freelance career doing that. And then eventually I got a job on staff at a company in Dallas. I was able to get an internship at this company. And I think part of that was based on experience that I already had um, doing, like already knowing software. And then during the internship, the company offered jobs to some of the people that were interns that had just graduated from college. And I got a little bit of a better salary offer because I already knew stuff and I wasn't having to be taught everything because I'd kind of taught myself that stuff. And, um, and then I worked on, on staff. I was doing originally graphic design and then I shifted into animation and then broadcast design. And then I was like an on-air broadcast designer. This company owned a bunch of TV networks and I would create like little interstitial reels that would have the network logo and, um, and show opens and um, credits and title sequences, things like that. And I got really into that for a while. That movie um, Seven had come out at that point, I think, and I was really into opening title sequences and thought I wanted to go really far in motion graphics. Um, and then I ended up taking that class, um, Steve Mims's class here in Austin, and at that point, after I made uh, worked with some friends on a short film, I thought I wanted to try um, editing, and then from going through editing, then uh, that was kind of a gateway into directing. What was your first big gig as a director? Um, I did some commercials that I was asked to direct that were mostly motion graphics, but there were some elements that I had to go out and film. Um, and um, but then you know this, I started working with this cinematographer on stuff, and we started this little boutique company doing motion graphics and live action stuff. Um, but then the the first I guess official directing thing was um, one of our clients. Uh, her name was Ramona Kelly. She had worked at GSDNM, um, an advertising agency here in Austin. She had a documentary that she had started making with another director, and he kind of dropped out, and they didn't really have any money. Um, but they had a, an amazing um, idea and they'd already started filming footage and it was this film about an, a, a P-47 pilot, a fighter pilot from World War II who was from Abilene, Texas, who had um, – was flying his P-47 in 1943, crashed in Belgium behind enemy lines. Uh, the Germans were chasing him. He got taken in by 
the Belgian resistance and smuggled through safe houses across Belgium uh, and then eventually was captured by the Nazis and put on this train, uh, the ghost train. And so it was an amazing, almost like a Forrest Gump uh, kind of story because he intersected with all these big moments of World War II, but he was a little-known Abilene um, guy, great guy. So I was asked to edit um, a trailer for that and then because of a lack of a director – um, Ramona and David Grosvenor, the son of the pilot, um, were they were just like, well, okay, well, if you want to finish this, like, let's do the whole thing. And then I realized there were things I needed to go film and interviews I needed that still needed to be done. So I directed those, and then the film was finished around uh, 2005, and we got it on PBS National. But before that, the big exciting thing was we got invited to screen it in Belgium for the. Um, the Belgian military, the Belgian army, uh, U.S. ambassador, and then the prince at that time of Belgium showed up at the screening. Uh, prince Philippe, he's now the king of Belgium. But he was uh, apparently so moved. Uh, he came out afterwards and had, had a Hogarten with me and the other uh, people that worked on the film and, um, and really loved the film. The people from the resistance were there. Uh, and it was a big deal. And then several months later, we got notified that we were going to be knighted, uh, myself and the producers and the cinematographer. We were going to be knighted in Belgium. So um, a couple of years later, it takes a long time for these things. Um, I was knighted in Belgium. That's insane. Yeah, Is that pretty... something you put on your, your resume or your LinkedIn <laughs> saying like – officially knighted by the Prince of Belgium, now King of Belgium. It doesn't make its way to those kinds of things, but it definitely does um, get mentioned as a kind of an icebreaker in conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't really, you know, it's neat. It's it's really neat and it's a huge honor. Um, people ask if it helps me to get anything. It, it doesn't really do much for me other than if I, I guess I went to Belgium and got invited to a fancy party, I could wear my medal which would designate that I am a, a knight, um, which is – they call it a chevalier. There's all these different classes of knights and I'm a chevalier, which means I think horseman. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty cool. Was it just like what people picture with knighting of like the sword on both shoulders or what was the ceremony like? You know, I didn't get to go to the ceremony because I was busy filming something else. And so they did it in Chicago with the producers and um, I'm sad to say I did not go. You have just, the medal though. I least. have the medal. It's in a frame <laughs> at home on the wall. So Very cool. Mm -hmm. And did you go to Belgium and just other areas over there to actually film for the movie? Yeah. Um, I went to Belgium – uh, for the screening and then we did some filming after that in Belgium as well um, and and did – yeah, we, we filmed um, – there was a, a specialist that kind of knew a lot about the resistance from Canada. We flew him here. But um, the real bulk of the research was uh, the son of the pilot, David Grosvenor. He figured out his dad um, – like where his dad was kind of at every step of the way. It was pretty amazing um, how he put it all together because in Belgium, people don't really move like they do in the United States. So he was able to find the houses that Bill was at based on these records of where he had been. Um, he didn't know the names because the names were all kept secret. But then just by tracking down the people at their houses, then he could find members of the resistance that were still living there or relatives. And so um, – the film, uh, we take Bill back over to Europe and have him travel around Belgium meeting people that had taken care of him, take him in, into the house 
uh, that he didn't even know their names. They had like code names. Uh, so they got to meet each other and it was amazing because Bill is just uh, – he's passed away but he was uh, you know, just an amazing Texan, just a very quiet, calm uh, guy from Abilene, just um, very humble. Um, and this incredible thing happened to him that I was fortunate to be able to document. And so with this movie and really all your movies going forward, there is a theme of Texas history. It, all, it always comes back to Texas. Why is that important to you? Yeah, it really just kind of evolved like that from the the last best hope thing. Um, I think I've always been attracted to stories that have to do with the West, um, Texas, um, the Mountain West, just the the kind of that sort of um, these these sorts of little known stories about Texans that have intersected with history in very odd ways that that really contribute to history but that a lot of people don't know about. So like a lot of people know about certain, you know, major Texans that have, you know, made history, I guess like recent history like George W. Bush and things like that uh, being president of the United States. But um, there's a whole other breed of Texans that have these – that are almost like footnotes but they're part of this bigger – uh, chapter like World War II or the Civil Rights Movement that are um, that are to me fascinating because um, Texas has just produced so many interesting people. I think there's something special about Texas in terms of you, you grow up in Texas, you're imbued with certain values, I, and you know that's kind of a weird word to use right now, but like the, these these sorts of values where you don't think of yourself as the center of everything, but you do the right thing and you try your best to help other people. And so a lot of people have come out of Texas that have made a big impact. And one of those being one of the next films that you did on um, a woman with the civil rights movement, which you briefly mentioned just now. Uh, can you talk about that film? Yeah. Um, so the, the second feature documentary that I made was about Barbara Smith Conrad and the documentary was called When I Rise. And it premiered at South by Southwest and um, we had a lot of success with that film in film festivals all over the world and a lot of national awards. So Barbara was uh, a woman that grew up in East Texas, uh, Northeast Texas, and she grew up singing in the church there in a really tiny town called Center Point. It's kind of a ghost town now. Um, but she um, went to UT and in 1957, UT integrated their undergraduate school. They'd already integrated the grad school, the, the law school with human sweat and everything. Um, but in 56, 57, that was the first school year that they had integrated the undergrad class. Barbara went from this tiny town in northeast Texas, um, beautiful singing voice, um, and she auditioned for an opera and it was Dido and Aeneas, this uh, Purcell opera that's very famous classical opera. And she was cast as the lead uh, aside uh, a you know blonde, blue-eyed guy. Uh, and the two of them um, were rehearsing and everything was going along just great until some people found out about it and there was a very sort of toxic block of people uh, that were segregationists at that point that made a lot of noise and tried to get her removed from the opera and they they did remove her from the opera. Um, Harry Belafonte, Eleanor Roosevelt, all these famous people found out about it. There was a big media firestorm and then um, she ended up staying at UT, got her degree uh, and then after leaving UT, after graduating, um, went to New York and became a pretty famous singer with the Metropolitan Opera and sort of a civil rights figure. But 
not you know not a super well known story, but um, the I, the idea was from this guy named Don Carlton who runs the Center for American History here in in Austin, and he was the recipient of her papers, like all of her um, archives are housed at the Briscoe Center. And so um, he – Don and the Briscoe Center had in, had put some um, money into the previous film I'd done, Last Best Hope, and then asked me if I wanted to do a film about Barbara. And we um, – I spent a lot of time with her. She also has since passed. That's really amazing though. I love that you're able to tell stories that no one would know otherwise because it, it really honestly re- resonates with me because that's what I love about journalism and – Getting to do these interviews and stuff is getting to hear stories that I never would have otherwise. And it's, it's important to hear, especially people like the people that you've done films on that no one would know, but they have really important, impactful stories. Yeah, it's amazing to – as a journalist, you probably have gone in, into research rooms where you get a big box of old um, papers, newspaper articles. And a lot of times people will – there will be something that's a huge deal at the time that disappears into almost total obscurity. And in the case of Barbara, what really hooked me about her story was going to the Briscoe Center for American History at UT and sitting down and getting boxes and boxes of papers that related to her, including all these news articles that were being written at the time you know, in Austin, but also in, in the New York Times and these big places in the 1950s and reading letters that people were writing to UT either for or against her casting in the Purcell opera. Um, and just that sense of being uh, you know, connected with history has always appealed to me. It's been a big part of, of the kinds of stories that I want to tell and that I continue to tell. And what was your next film after that? Um, so I, I think I should you know, mention that I started with uh, my uh, wife, Beth Hames, and partner, Wilson Wagner, a small production company to do um, films, and mostly at the beginning we were doing these films for nonprofits. And our first ever client was um, Lance Armstrong and his foundation, the Live Strong Foundation. So in between films, you know, you you're it's not the most lucrative uh, career to make these kinds of documentaries. So we had this production company that was growing at the same time. So in between films, we would often. You know, take a break and do you know, spend a year and a half or more just doing you know projects for clients, and and it went beyond Livestrong. At that point, we you know were working with this nonprofit out of Boston called Partners in Health, and uh, started by Paul Farmer, and there were a lot of other nonprofits that saw our films and wanted us to kind of bring the the stuff that we brought to the feature docs and the Livestrong stuff to their uh, films. So. Um, I traveled around. I think around that time I was traveling. I went to Jordan and Rwanda and South Africa and um, made a lot of uh, nonprofit films, films for NGOs and things like that in other countries that were little short documentaries about things that was that were going on. We did one for the – that showed at the United Nations um, Global Summit on uh, noncommunicable diseases. We did a screening at Mayor Bloomberg's house um, in New York. And we just sort of got into this world of just telling stories about things that were going on all over. So I traveled a lot. Um, And then the next – I think the next thing that I did was I began a project uh, in Wyoming about the northern Arapaho tribe and the eastern Shoshone tribes that live on the Wind River Reservation there in Wyoming. 
Um, and they were attempting to find out what happened to thousands of artifacts that had been collected on the reservation in the early 20th century. And um, we discovered they were in this um, – the basement of the Field Museum, Chicago Field Museum. And so um, traveled with the tribes there with some elders and some young people and then the basis for that became a film called What Was Ours uh, that was on Independent Lens. And uh, that was another uh, feature doc that kind of started small and then just sort of grew over time. And that film took about four years to make, three and a half, four years to make. So these things take a long time. So What Was Ours I think was finished around 2017. You've been able to tell so many stories, been able to go to so many places, but is there one story that was really your favorite to make and one place that you visited that was your favorite to go to? Well, I think it's always the most recent thing that I did that feels like my favorite um, because, you know, maybe when I'm like 90, I'll be able to look back and be a little more objective. But um, in uh, 2016, 2017, I started working with a, a UT professor named Michael Weber, and he's an author uh, here in Austin and a professor and um, writes about energy. And I started collaborating with him and an executive producer named Juan Garcia on a series called Power Trip, the Story of Energy. And it's multiple episodes. It's Each episode is an hour long delving into the history of energy. And of course, in Texas, we we're sort of at the epicenter of a lot of that history. So a lot of that had to do with Texas stories. I got to interview uh, authors like Brian Burrow, who wrote The Big Rich. Um, and he's actually, he lives in Austin and, you know, just some other great authors that know about energy history um, and got to travel to places like Iceland and Japan and Ireland, um, Israel, um, the UK, Wales, filming in coal mines. Um, and so I think that right now that's probably my favorite project is doing this this series and it's 12 episodes and each episode is an hour long. So it's 12 hours of history um, about energy and um, and I'm you know that just finished. We just finished that project and it's dropped on the streaming platforms in the last month. And then we're doing a screening of one of the episodes actually coming up at the Paramount Theater stateside um, in November, November sixteenth. So um, I'm really excited to bring that to Austin and have a screening of that episode. That's so cool. Yeah. And then, do you have a favorite place out of all the places you've gone for filming? Hmm. That's a really good question. I have been working on another documentary that is uh, funded by a couple in Texas about work that they're funding in Zambia. And I've been going to Zambia a lot. And I would say right now Zambia has probably been my favorite place to go because it is um, – it's a long way. It You have to fly to South Africa – um, or uh, Doha, depending on the way you go, and then you you basically go from there to Zambia to Livingston, and um, it's just been an amazing experience. Zambia is it's not uh, dangerous in the sense of you can film there and people are pretty open to it, and also unself conscious. Like they're not there haven't been a lot of films made there yet, so. Um, I find that people are uh, very unselfconscious and very open to uh, talking with me. And um, so I've been there I think three times. I've done three trips there so far. 
and um, the people are just amazing. The the waterfall that's there um, is is incredible, and um, I mean it's rough. It's not like we're staying in a in the Four Seasons. It's it's kind of out in the middle of of a rural area with a lot of uh, things that make it tough to film in tough conditions. But those are the kinds of things that I really enjoy. Um, and then, um, you know, I would say Zambia probably. Also really like Iceland. But at the end of the day, like I really like Texas. I think some of my favorite things that I've ever filmed would be in tiny towns in Texas. Um, and, you know, I travel a lot. And a lot of times I go to other places. And, you know, when people find out I'm from Austin, they'll say, oh, you know, I would really love um, – I really love Austin. Not too sure about Texas though. And it's not – I understand why people say that uh, because of the – you know, Texas has a sort of reputation in the media. There's a lot of stereotypes about Texas. But I find myself uh, getting defensive when people say that and, and wanting to stick up for the whole entire state of Texas because Austin is great but Austin is sort of this – I mean part of to me why – Austin is so interesting is because it is in the middle of Texas and it's sort of surrounded by different kinds of people and um, and so I I like Austin I still you know I'm glad to call Austin home but uh, there's a part that I think my favorite parts of Austin even feel like Texas but they just feel I don't know if you know what I'm talking about like they just feel uniquely Austin but there's a Texasness about it that's that's great. Can you talk a bit more or like what can you say, I guess, about upcoming projects like the one in Zambia? Like what's on the horizon for you? Well, um, I have a bunch of things that are going on right now. So our production company, Alpheus Media, is working, of course, on some some client work. We have been um, thrilled to work with Bluebell um, Creameries um, and we've been doing a lot of work with them and um, – they're just really great people out in Brenham um, and we enjoy working with them on on their brand film stuff and commercial stuff. Um, we are also starting a new documentary about the history of mountain guiding in North America and uh, in the West and kind of the Western states and sort of the contribution of certain um, mountain guide historical figures that um, that really have made an impact in like – the reason that we all, you know, if, if you climb like belaying and things like that are, you know, kind of coming from this this historical place in North America. So we're focusing on that. We're um, also doing a, of course, a feature about Zambia and uh, a village in Zambia that's going to be transformed by some big infrastructure build outs that they're doing there with uh, clinics and schools and a reservoir and a dam. So we're focusing on that. That's a kind of a multi-year thing. Um, and then there's another project that I'm starting to work on, I hope, that is about a Vietnam veteran uh, who lives in Wyoming. And um, I can't really say too much about that right now, but it's just kind of getting started. Um, and then hopefully do another season of Power Trip that we've done two seasons so far. And then we would love to do a season three. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I feel like, oh, yeah, there's one other thing that I totally forgot to mention, which is we are we've been doing a lot of work in the mental health space and making films um, that thematically that link to mental health and so we're doing a, a series called a state of mind that's about mental health um, in the mountain west states specifically 
Um, and that kind of builds on a lot of the nonprofit work we've done in the past, but it's for PBS as well. And we did six episodes of that. We've won – that series has won four regional Emmys. And um, we are embarking on season two of that right now where we're filming all over the Mountain West um, to tell stories that have to do with mental health. Like there's this sort of cowboy mentality that exists in the western states that this idea of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And that can be great when you're trying to like help your neighbor fix a tire. But it's not as great when you're having mental health challenges. So – the series is kind of all about exploring that sort of cowboy code and that kind of stigma uh, around um, depression and um, you know mental health. So we're we're doing that. We're traveling a lot for that right now. Is there one thing or maybe a couple things that you really want viewers to take away from your work, just in general? Yeah, I think that I've been particularly proud of tiptoeing through some pretty complex topics that could easily become very politically charged but without bringing in my own politics into things and and becoming um, – just kind of feeding into that polarization. I I think that we are so polarized right now um, in this country and there's a lot of things in the documentary world that are political and rightfully so and you know there's a place for all that. Um, for me, I don't want to contribute to that and I think Texas – you know, this is like a longer kind of conversation but I feel like in my mind at least, Texas and the things I love about Texas are this kind of um, small town ethos that can exist even in big cities of just you help your neighbor, you love your neighbor. Um, even if your neighbor has completely different beliefs or politics than you, you're gonna if you know if some if they're um, they need help, you're gonna go help them. You know, you're gonna help them cut their grass when they're out of town, or you're gonna you know get the mail for them, or look out for their house, or, or whatever, um, walk their dog for them. And I think there's a there's a, a uniquely Texas thing that is not political, or it transcends you know, political divides that I'd like to emphasize. I like to kind of keep going back to this idea. And I, I feel like no matter how diverse we all are, that it would it's good to be to have a cohesive sort of set of values and identity. And um and so a lot of my my work is maybe I'm in denial, but I really want to believe that we all um really care about our neighbor. And we're not going to hate our neighbor because of political stuff um, or religious stuff or you know whatever. And to me, it's very Texan to value the person above that other – the identity that's kind of put upon them from whether they watch Fox News or MSNBC, things like that. So sorry, that was a bit of a soapbox. but <laughs> No, not at all. As we come to the end of the interview, there's a question that I ask everyone who comes onto the podcast as a tie into the name and actually just ties into what you were just saying. And that is for you, what does it mean to be Texan? Uh, For me, what it means to be Texan is to care about your neighbor, to not ask your neighbor for too much help, but be being totally willing to help your neighbor at all you know, in all situations, um, to be respectful of people, 
um, to be thoughtful, not talking, not always just wanting to be the one talking, the one that that everyone is listening to, but to listen, um, to uh, to fulfill your responsibilities to people, uh, to be a good friend, um, and to know how to cook meat. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding about that last one. There's plenty. I have lots of vegetarian friends. Where can people find you online or find well, and or find your films? Uh, the best way to follow me is matthamesfilm.com. And by the way, it's Matt with one T because I think that my dad thought it was spelled that way. I think he didn't think there were two T's. I'm not sure. This is kind of a family lore, but my name is only spelled with one T, Matt with one T, Matt Hames. So matthamesfilm.com. You can go to Amazon if you have Amazon Prime and you should be able to just search my name as long as you spell it with one T. Uh, you should be able to find stuff there. Um, also Apple TV, there's some stuff there um, where you could just use Google and see where everything's streaming. Streaming is so – everything is so um, um, all over the place these days that probably the best way is just to Google Thank you so very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to tell your story on Truly Texan, head over to the Austin American Statesman website and fill out our submission form. This podcast is hosted and edited by me, Hannah Ortega. You can find me on Instagram at Hannah Ortega ATX. 